Well, uh, I've been looking forward to this sermon for quite a while, and I want to talk with you today from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as Brett said. I want to talk with you about the only logical response, the only fitting, reasonable, appropriate response to what we have heard so far in the book of Romans. It's the only response that really makes any sense in view of what we've come to understand from the first 11 chapters of this amazingly rich letter. And what exactly is that response? Glad you asked. It's found, again, in the first two verses of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this time I'd like you to read read them aloud with me, would you? From the ESV version. Let's read this aloud. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, years ago, I memorized this passage in the King James Version of the Bible, and it goes like this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's a good translation. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye, old King James, right? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A couple other translations, I think, shed more light on this, so indulge me if you would. This is the God's Word translation. Brothers and sisters, in view of all that we have just shared about God's compassion, I encourage you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices dedicated to God and pleasing to Him. This kind of worship is appropriate for you. Don't become like the people of this world. Instead, change the way you think. Then you will always be able to determine what God really wants, what is good and pleasing and perfect. There's a Phillips translation, which is really a paraphrase, and it reads like this. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God. Don't you like that? I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and meets all of his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Well, there are a lot of themes in these two little verses. There are the mercies of God. There's offering our bodies to God as a what? A living sacrifice. There's worship that's acceptable to God, not being conformed to this world, being transformed, renewing our minds, proving that God's will is good. So today, I'm I'm serving as a stand-in for the writer of this. I'm serving as a stand-in for the Apostle Paul, to speak uh, not just his words to you, but God's words to you. To you who are the people of God, who have experienced the mercies of God. And, and I want you to know that in a few moments, I'm going to appeal to you, like Paul does here. I'm going to appeal to you to offer your whole life to God. And so I want to be upfront with you about where we're going, where we're headed And I I believe this is an important day for us. And for some of you, it could be a defining moment in your life. I've been praying for that all week. So we've been in this book of Romans, right? For how long? Seven months. (laughs) Seven months. And, And we've seen that Paul has spent 11 chapters laying out in detail the ways that God has shown his mercy to his people. I guess he could have just skipped all that. I guess he could have just launched right in in chapter 1 and said, Hey, you people, Paul here. 
Give your lives to God. He deserves it. But he, he didn't do that. He, instead, he, he carefully and meticulously laid out all of this groundwork, this extensive groundwork, which now serves as the basis for this appeal that he's making here in chapter 12. And so he says, I appeal to you, therefore. And I was taught in Bible college that whenever you look in the scriptures and you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself what it's therefore. And that's a word that links what's being said now to what's gone previous, right? It's a, a link word. And so he's saying, on the basis of everything that I've just said in chapters 1 through 11, therefore, because of all of these mercies of God to his people, give your lives to God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And it, I think it would do us well to think for a moment about those mercies. What did we see? What have we seen in Romans 1 through 11? How has God treated us in Christ? What are his mercies to us? And of course, we could talk about the fact that he's provided justification by faith for us apart from good works, right? Praise God for that. Forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. The gift of Jesus' righteousness credited to us so that we now have a right standing before God by his grace. He's talking about mercies like everlasting peace with God and God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. He's talking about eternal joy in God and strength and affliction and solid hope and kindness from God and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's God's mercy to us and and he talked about us having a glorious future together and an assurance of our salvation and the Holy Spirit who prays for us and security in Christ. And in the last several weeks, we Gentiles being grafted in to the olive tree, so to speak, of God's blessing. All of these mercies to us from God, the God of mercy. And Paul says, on the basis of all of those mind-blowing mercies, that God has given to you. Therefore, I urge you to respond by offering your lives completely to God. And listen, this is the gospel pattern that we see in nearly all of Paul's writings. I love the quote from Brian Chappell who said, the gospel shapes its containers. And that includes the scriptures which contain the gospel. And Time and time again, we see in the writings of Paul that his letters first talk about what God has done for us, and then about what we should do in response. That's the pattern, right? First, God's initiative, and then our response. Doctrine first, then duty. Belief, then behavior. For you English majors, indicatives first, then imperatives. God's action followed by our reaction, our response. That is the gospel pattern. It's God who initiates. It's we who respond. And that's what we see here. First, God's mercies to us, chapters 1 through 11. And now here, our response. So, what is the only reasonable, logical response to those people who have been showered with the mercies of God? Or as the psalmist put it in Psalm 116, 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards us? What is our reasonable response? Well, here it is. It's in verse 1 there. In a word, it's, it's worship. Amen? It's to worship God. Or you could say it this way, to devote the rest of your life on earth, however long that is, to being an all-in, fully surrendered, totally consumed worshiper of the one true God. I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is the response that is called for from every Christian who really gets the mercy of God to them. Worship. 
Present your bodies to God. This is your spiritual worship. That word that's translated spiritual there in the ESV, in the original language, in the Greek language, is the word logikos. Sound familiar? John MacArthur writes, you could translate logikos in a lot of ways. Logical, reasonable, sensible, heartfelt, spiritual. All of those work, but the bottom line is that offering yourselves to God as a living sacrifice is the only thing that makes any sense in view of God's mercies to us. And so worship, worshiping God is the only reasonable response for those who grasp the truths of Romans 1 through 11. Worshiping God instead of worshiping something else or someone else. Let me just tell you, no one has done for you what God has done for you. No one has done for me what almighty, merciful God has done for me. Therefore, we are called to respond by worshiping Him and Him alone. You know, in the church, in the big church, the capital C church, I call it, there's some confusion about what worship is and what worship means. And many Christians equate worship with what? Music, right? And I love music. I love worship music. I know many of you do as well. And certainly music is one beautiful expression of worship or, or outlet for worship, but you need to understand that worship is not music. Paul explains here what worship is, and there's no mention of music, there's no mention of singing. Other people equate worship because of their background with candles and icons and religious rituals and, and liturgies, and again, those things can serve as expressions of worship or even aids to worship, but they are not the essence of what it means to worship God. And so here in Romans 12, Paul, having given a strong appeal for Christian people to worship and having shown us what the basis or motivation for, for our worship should be, the mercies of God, now he explains what is the true essence of worship. What is worship at its core? And these two little verses that are pregnant with meaning, he reveals three elements of true worship, or three aspects of what it means to really worship God. I'll just give them to you up front. Complete surrender, cultural resistance, and continual transformation. So complete surrender, that's presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God, like he says. Cultural resistance, that's refusing to be conformed to this world any longer. And continual transformation, that's letting God transform you by constantly renewing your what? Your mind. And so these are the, the three dimensions, I guess you could say, of worshiping God, of what that means. And each one of them is essential, and so I want to break it down a bit for us. So first, let's talk about complete surrender. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we could define it like this. In a solemn act of dedication, offer your entire self to God as a living sacrifice. So just say that phrase, living sacrifice, would you? Living sacrifice. Now that language, we know, is Old Testament language, isn't it? That's priestly language. That's temple language. It's the language presenting a, a sacrifice. That's the language of the Jewish sacrificial system in which the priests would offer animal sacrifices on an altar and that would temporarily cover the sins of the people. They would take a, a what? A goat or a bull or a lamb and they would slit its throat and they would kill it and they would shed its blood and then they would place the dead animal, the dead carcass on a stone altar and then they would light fire to it so that it would be consumed in the fire and smoke would ascend heavenward and that was a sacrifice and they would offer these dead sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again in observance of those ceremonial laws that God had given to his people Israel but we know that 
In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that all of those animal sacrifices were not really sufficient to atone for the sins of the people. They were actually meant to be signposts that pointed forward to the coming one day of the ultimate sacrificial lamb, right? The ultimate sacrificial lamb who would shed his blood and die as the ultimate sacrifice for human sins. The only truly satisfying atonement in the sight of God. And we know that that sinless, spotless lamb was none other than Jesus Christ himself, Jesus of Nazareth, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's interesting to think about Jesus became our priest, our high priest, who offered up not an animal sacrifice, but who offered up himself for our sins, shedding his own blood. It was his death, his sacrifice on the cross that brought an abrupt end to the Jewish sacrificial system, like it was done like that. No more Animal sacrifices required beyond that point. We're in the new covenant now, thankfully. Amen? So Paul uses that same language here of priestly sacrifice to picture the Christian's new covenant response to having received God's mercies shown to us in Christ. In effect, he says, since Jesus offered himself as a dead sacrifice for us, I now appeal to you to respond in kind by offering yourself not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice back to him. And not to atone for sin. That's already been accomplished. That's already been completed, right? But as an act of devotion and worship to the one who did that for us, who atoned for our sin. So you see, in this matter of giving yourself as a sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice, your blood is not required, amen? Your death is not required. It's not what God wants. He wants you as a living sacrifice who of your own will, your own volition, crawl up on that altar and say, God, I am yours. Here I am. Take all of me. I'm yours from now on. Nothing else makes any sense to me but to totally surrender my whole entire life to you. Consume me for your kingdom and your glory and your cause. I'm giving all that I know of me to all that I know of you. Listen, that is worship. That is worship. Presenting your body, presenting your entire self, all of you, to God. That is the essence of true worship. It's me climbing up on that altar and giving myself to God. My past, my present, my future, my body, my heart, my soul, my mind, my emotions, my will, my gifts, my personality, my abilities, all of me to Him. You see, Peter tells us in his letter that God has made us priests now. That we are a kingdom of priests. And our priestly act of worship is to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. The old timers used to call this, they had a word for this, they called it consecration. Consecration. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Set apart, offered in singular devotion to God. Consecrated. Now, I would say to you that this, this act of dedication, this act of consecration is huge for you in your walk with Christ. I would say you and I are not going to get to experience the goodness of God's will for our lives apart from this, apart from offering ourselves fully surrendered to God. So many of the blessings of the new covenant are tied to this, this act of consecration, this act of complete surrender to God. And I I need to tell you this, this is not, hey God, I've got my own agenda here for my life, would you sign off on it please? This is not, hey, here's my plan for how I can have a great and awesome life, would you please endorse it for me? This is not that. This is, God, here's my agenda, 
I'm trading my agenda for your agenda. I have no future plans apart from you. That's different, isn't it? It's totally different than asking God to bless your plan versus saying, I have no plan but your plan for my life, God. From this moment on, I'm a a blank slate. You write it in. You fill it in. You write the next chapters of my life. I'm yours, not my will, but yours be done. So I guess you could say, in that sense, this offering ourselves as a living sacrifice does involve dying like a sacrifice, dying to my own agenda, dying to my own plans for my future, dying to my own will for my life, sacrificing my own success in the eyes of the world. Dead but living. A living dead person. Is that an oxymoron? Sounds that way. The walking dead, I guess you could say. A living dead person for God. And in a few moments, I'm going to urge you beseech you, appeal to you, just like Paul does here, to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the second time, or maybe for the tenth time. In view of God's mercy to you, and I will tell you that if you respond to the word of God in that way, by offering yourself completely to God, things are going to begin to change in your life. They will. Now, maybe you hear that and you say, now, wait a second, Steve, I'm a Christian. I don't need to do that, do I? Well, let me ask this question. Who is he writing to here? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters. He's writing to Christians. This was written to believers. This is the only reasonable response of a Christian who's finally grasping the breadth of God's mercies to them. It's what Paul would want. More importantly, it's what God calls us to. He wants you to release control of your life and give that control over to him. Complete surrender, including that thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? That one thing that you want to hold on to. It's like, you can have everything else, but I got this, my reputation I'm going to go ahead and retain control of that, or my future, or my livelihood, or my kids. God wants that too. Better in His hands. Better in His hands. So, present your whole body, your whole self to God. That's where worship begins. Then there's a second aspect, not only presenting your entire life to God as a living sacrifice, but the flip side of that coin involves, second, cultural resistance. Let me explain. You could say it this way, resolve to counter and resist the strong influence of the current culture that aims to shape your thinking and your values and your lifestyle and draw you away from God. You say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. You know, one question I like to ask people in the right setting is, is this. So, so tell me, what, 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 what are you chasing after in life? It's a fair question, isn't it? What are, you, what are you chasing after? And if they're honest, that the answer they provide is, is very revealing. Because this world that we live in bombards us with all kinds of messages about what we should be chasing after if we want to be happy, right? Movies and videos and streaming and TV and music and entertainment and advertising and the media and even friends and coworkers are all sending us thousands of messages every day about what will make our lives worth living, what will make us happy and fulfilled and satisfied in life. But listen, if you are one who chooses to respond to the mercies of God by offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God, that of necessity is going to change your stance towards the culture that we live in. 
this current that we're all swimming in. If you completely surrender to God, you're going to find yourself wanting to swim upstream in some ways, to buck the trend, as we've said it around here, to go against the grain. And yeah, you're going to get, be viewed as, as being kind of weird by some people because of what you don't do anymore, maybe, or places you don't go anymore. But like it says in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5, listen, Peter wrote this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, amen, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, and they are surprised. King James says, they think it's strange. They think you're weird, that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And that could happen to you if you resolve to resist the influence of the culture to stop being conformed to this world. That could happen to you. This word, conform, the image it contains is of a substance that's being pressed into a mold. Think Play-Doh. Remember the molds that you press the play-doh through you could translate this verse stop allowing the spirit of this age to press you into its mold this is a commitment to resist being shaped and molded and influenced by the prevailing culture and we know that the bible says in first john 5:19 the whole world lies in the power of the evil one we know that Satan is temporarily known as the God of this world, the God, small g, of this world, that he's active in exerting his influence in this world to try and draw people away from devotion to the one true God, right? And to attract us to any one of a number of false gods. You know, there are always a variety of gods competing for your devotion. Did you know that? There are many false sources of life, many substitute functional saviors, you could say, that call out to us and promise us all kinds of pleasures. We'll just embrace them. And I want to say this to us. If you've spent a good portion of your life chasing after a particular idol, you know what? That idol lays claim to you. That idol, in a sense, believes it has a right to you, and, and allegiances get established, and soul ties get formed, and, and now if you decide to start worshiping the one true God, it's going to require you to break off those soul ties, to break off those allegiances by the power and shed blood of your master, Jesus Christ. You know, I do that every morning in my morning prayer. I break off by the power of Christ any allegiances or soul ties I unwittingly, inadvertently formed the day before. And I say, I cut you off right now. I break you off right now in the mighty name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to be free from any of that. Do you? This is repentance and renouncing of these allegiances that have been formed in previous days or weeks or months or a whole season of our life through what we chose to worship in those days, what we were chasing after. You see, the Apostle John wrote, do not love the world. He's not talking about the people. We love the people of the world, right? We love people. He's talking about the system, the culture. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust or desires of the flesh, the lust or desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So Satan, the God of this world, we've got to understand, is so skilled at using an arsenal of enticements to derail people and distract them and draw them away from God. And John mentions three of them here. He talks about the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. What's that? Well, that's sensual pleasures, right? Is our culture about enticing us to engage in sensual pleasures? 
seeking to always do what feels good, no matter what the cost. The world says, that's what you should be chasing after because that's what's going to make life worth living. It talks about the lusts or desires of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes. That's chasing after what? All the enchanting things that your eyes see. By the way, the Bible says the eyes of man are never satisfied. Can I just tell you it'll never be enough? It'll never be enough. Your eyes, my eyes, will always want more. More stuff, better stuff. Well, that's what all the happy people are chasing after, right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and he says the pride of life. That's just all of our efforts to try to get other people to acknowledge how awesome we are. That's always competing for the spotlight and advancing yourself and climbing the ladder of success, right? So that other people will think highly of you. That's where it's at. Make it to the top. Then you'll really be living. And whenever I hear that phrase, climbing the ladder of success, I always remember what a preacher said years ago. He said, you know what? What happens, though, when you're climbing the ladder of success, climbing, 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 and you reach the top only to discover to your dismay that your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall? It's worth thinking about. Well, All of these things have a common core value, if you ask me, and it's rampant in our culture today. I've heard it called the rise of the autonomous self. It's the cult of personal autonomy that says, my life is my life. And nobody else has any right to tell me how to live it. I'll chase after whatever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. And don't block my way or I'll call you a bad person. Often this is cloaked in freedom language, right? I just want to be free, which sounds noble, but really can just be a cover for self-indulgence and self-absorption. That's the operating system of the world that we live in, the cult of personal autonomy. But listen, if you want to love God, if you want to worship God, you cannot also love the world. If anyone loves the world, John wrote, the love of the Father is not in him. A choice must be made. If you're going to choose to worship God, then you must also choose to join the resistance and stop conforming to the pattern of this world. Sure, like I said, you might, if you do that, you might get viewed as being a bit weird, a bit out of touch, out of step, a bit strange. Out on the fringes, not fitting in. That's okay. You'll fit in nicely with God, and you'll fit in nicely with God's weird family of misfits. (laughs) And in a sense, that's what we are. Now listen, in this matter of, of not conforming and resisting the influence of the world, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. You don't have to get on your social media soapbox and make all kinds of enemy enemies and say all kinds of nasty things that's not what we're talking about but you're definitely going to be marching to the beat of a different drummer right and that's what God wants and I would say to you it's also what some other people are looking for I was talking with a young lady last week I think it was two weeks ago now who uh, has been coming to this church and she told me about a young couple in our church who just kind of reached out to her and began to befriend her and began to take an interest in her life you can take that call you want it's okay and uh, this couple started pouring into this young lady's life spiritually and she said you know what Steve I came to the point where I realized I wanted what they have I wanted what they have they were different but but different in a good way different in a winsome way Some people are looking for that. And you may be the carrier that God wants to use to make his way into their lives. So let me ask you, can you hear God's call to you today from Romans 12, 1 and 2 to completely surrender your whole life to God and to declare your resistance to being dominated by the spirit of this age? Can you hear it?
I can. There's a flip side to this. Yeah, there's a stop conforming. There's a negative, like stop doing this aspect to this. But there's also a positive aspect as well. And that's the third essential of true worship. And that's continual transformation. Or you could say it like this. Start allowing God to daily renew your mind and change how you think and live to align more and more with his good will. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So stop being conformed, start being transformed, instead of allowing the world to shape you and mold you from the outside in, let the Spirit of God reshape your life from the inside out. That's the idea here. And be transformed, literally it's in the present tense, be continually being transformed. This is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing process of letting God transform you. And the Greek word for transformation, listen, the original word, be transformed, is metamorpho. From which we get our word? Metamorphosis, which we all remember from fourth grade science class, refers to the transformation of a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. So what a picture Paul uses here. So yes, God accepts us where we are in all of our ugliness, but he's too good to leave us that way. He's working by his Holy Spirit to metamorphosize us day by day by day by day into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And our part, he says, is to cooperate. To cooperate. I get that from the fact that the verb is in the passive voice, which means he doesn't say transform yourself. He says what? Be transformed, which means somebody else is doing the transforming work in us. Our job is to cooperate with him. And who is that? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the one who's working in us, shaping our character forming our hearts, directing our choices. Our part is to cooperate with him, to let him fill us and lead us and control us. We've been recording some videos for Easter. Been pretty cool to be a part of. Some videos of new lifers who are, who are coming alive to God in some of the ways that we're talking about here. And one of my questions to them has been, so as you see yourself coming alive to God, what changes are you seeing? How is God transforming you in such a way that's evident to you and perhaps even to other people? And the responses have been so encouraging, but you'll have to come on Easter to hear them. But how wonderful to hear God's people share the many ways they're seeing the Holy Spirit produce change in them as they cooperate with his work in them, changing their outlook, changing their priorities, their decisions, their choices, their relationships, chase, uh, changing what they're chasing after now, changing their mood. It's beautiful, really. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how the Holy Spirit changes us, by, by renovating the way that we think, our mindsets. And how does this happen? I would suggest to you this renewing of the mind happens as we, here's how we cooperate, by regularly filling our minds with the truth of God's Word. The Word. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who does the transforming work in us, but He uses the Word. He uses God's word, and that's why it's absolutely critical that we believers soak our minds, marinate our minds in the word of God, taking it in regularly, amen? Here in church, at home, in our quiet time before the Lord, in our small groups, in our cars, we need regular infusions of truth. Why? Because we have all been discipled by our world. We've all been mentored by this culture we live in. Our minds have been corrupted with deception and lies. We think wrong thoughts about God and about ourselves and about life and about others. 
Just as a few examples, we've been mentored by our culture to think that real happiness is found in being free from God when the truth actually is that true joy is found in being free in God. We've been discipled to think that our identity is rooted in our achievements, our performance, how good we're doing, but the truth is our identity is actually rooted in God's declaration of who we are in Christ. What God says about you is the truest truth about you. We've been taught that our, our past defines us, that we'll, we're chained to our past. We can never escape from our past. It labels us, but God says our past is under the blood of Christ. We're now defined as a new creation, right? Adopted children of God, of the Father. So many lies, so many lies have gotten embedded in our minds that's why we desperately need our minds to be renewed. And so not being conformed to this world, being transformed by the renewing of our mind means rejecting those lies, those misbeliefs, those untruths that have been foisted upon us by our culture and replacing them with the truth of the word of the living God. That's how transformation is going to take place in your life and in my life. And that's the pathway to true freedom which we all long for. And what's the effect of all this? What can a person expect to experience when they decide to respond to God's mercy with completely surrendering their lives to God and resisting the culture's influence and continually being transformed by the renewing of their minds? What awaits us? Many good things, but Paul hones in on one particular result here. And I love the Phillips paraphrase of this because he, he says it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within, here it is, so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. Yeah, I talk to many people, many Christian people who say they want to know God's will for their life. Some people want to know it in order to be able to vote on it. Others are scared to death of knowing the will of God because they think it's going to be horrible. That if they submit to the will of God, that God's going to send them to Africa where they're going to get boiled alive in a big iron pot with natives dancing all around them celebrating their demise. That's what they think the will of God is about. But what Paul says here is that God's will for each of his people is good. And to, the way to really know that is to experience that goodness for yourself, not just read about it in a book. And he's saying the ones who are going to be able to prove to themselves that the will of God is good are the ones who have fully surrendered their whole lives to God. That's how you're going to know that the will of God is good. You ask, well, what is the will of God for me? Paul's not going to leave us in the dark. He's going to unfold the will of God for believers in the next four chapters of Romans. He's going to reveal God's will for how we see ourselves, for how we relate to each other, to how we live and function and use our gifts in this community of believers that we're a part of, God's will for that. He's going to reveal God's will for how we relate to the empire that we live in, to use Henry Goulet's word. The governmental authorities, the powers that be, he's even going to talk about God's will for you with respect to paying your taxes. Unfortunately, we won't get to that till after April 15. <laughs> he's going to reveal more of God's will for how we engage with our culture and the people we work with and live with, especially people who don't love God. He's going to tell us what God's will is for that. And then in a very intriguing section in chapter 14, Paul's going to lay out God's will for us when we find ourselves disagreeing about things and how we should handle conflicts over having differing opinions. Essentially, he's going to tell us that God does indeed have a will for each and every one of us, and it's not so much about where we live or what kind of work we do or what our livelihood is or who we marry or how we earn a living. It's about the kind of people that we're becoming. And how we relate to others in our world. And God's will, he will stress, is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And if you want to experience that and prove the goodness of it firsthand in your own experience, the first step is to give up your whole life to God, to surrender everything to God, to stop conforming to this world and to let God continually change you through renewing your mind. Or in shorthand, you could say it this way, consecrate yourself to Him, combat worldly influence, it's a fight, and cooperate with His work of renewal and transformation in your life. And I ask you now this question, are you ready for that? Would you reach into your worship folder and take out this little card? looks like this. Some of you saw that earlier and you thought, "Uh uh-oh. I know what Steve does with cards. (laughs) On the front side, it looks like this. It says, um, April 6th and 7th. Today's the seventh. Today, today, I'm responding to God's abundant mercy to me. Remember, it's a response. I'm responding to God's abundant mercy to me by presenting my whole self as a living sacrifice to him. And notice it has a place to sign in blood. (laughs) Your shed blood is not required. Jesus shed for you. But you could write your name on there, your own signature there, and print your name below that. You say, why is that? Because if, you, if you're serious about this, I'm going to have you submit this card, and then we're going to mail it back to you. And you're going to get it in the mail, and you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's right. I gave my life to God last week. Because we easily forget, don't we? And on the back side, at the top, it's just a simple prayer. This is the living sacrifice prayer. Lord, I am yours. I'm seeing myself climbing up on that altar and laying out there and saying, I completely surrender to you. I am yours. Take my life. Take my life. I uh, first did this. I first gave my life to God in 1979. I was 18. And we've got some middle schoolers in the room. How great would it be as a middle schooler if you gave your life to God at age... 11, 12, 13. In 2004, I renewed that. I was hiking in Colorado, Garden of the Gods. You ever heard of it? I was hiking there, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. It was 25 years after my first dedication to God. And I was up there in the mountains, and and he said, I want you to renew that. I want you to rededicate your life to me. And I did. On that hiking trip, I took, a, I took this rock, which says 25, signifying 25 years, 2004, and I carved my name into the side of the mountain there. I said, Lord, I'm yours. I'm sure it's been all washed away since 2004, but I took this rock with me. I keep it in my office to remind me that I'm dedicated to God. And then as I knew we were approaching Romans 12, 1 and 2, I sensed God saying to me again, Steve, I want you to offer your life to me again as a living sacrifice. Because this is not just something you necessarily only do once. We're familiar with dedicating our lives to God and rededicating our lives to God, right? And so today, I'm dedicating my life to God again in front front of a lot of witnesses here, saying, Jesus, I'm yours, take my life. 1979, 25 years, 2004, 15 years, 2019. And I have a rock here that has a a cross etched on it, signifying how Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. And I'm going to take this rock and put it next to this one on my shelf in my office to remind myself I belong to him. I serve at his pleasure. I belong to God. I believe the adventure in your life does not begin until you surrender your life to God. Then he's got something to work with. He can direct a moving object, right? Well, guess what? We don't just have one rock here today. We have hundreds of them. 
I think it's good to have some symbols of our devotion. I like something that I can feel and touch and has, has some weightiness to it. I can carry it in my pocket or look at it to remind me of the day that I gave my life wholly to God and surrendered it wholly to Him. Some of you today are going to do this for the first time. Like you've never really thought about this before, but for the first time you're going to say, I am presenting my whole life as a living sacrifice to God. Praise God for that. If this is the first time you're going to do that today, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of special. I'm going to ask you to bring that card up to a prayer partner here in just a few minutes. And they have a a prayer that they want to pray over you just to kind of seal that decision in your heart, okay? But some of you are going to come and rededicate your life to God. You, You dedicated your life to God in 1986 or 1957 or 2001 or 2010, or 2014, but God's calling you today to rededicate your life to God, and I'm going to challenge you to come in just a moment. Bring your card, lay it in a basket, an empty basket, and then take a stone, take it back with you, just as a way of commemorating the fact that today, April 7th, I'm offering my life to God as a living sacrifice. Make sense? And so as your pastor... And as Paul's stand-in, I beseech you, I urge you, I implore you, I appeal to you, therefore, based on the manifold mercies of God to you in your life that you've experienced, that you present, offer your bodies, your entire self as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, because this is the only reasonable response to the mercies of God. And stop being conformed to this world. Stop allowing the culture to press you into its mold. But be being transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind, daily, continually, ongoing, letting God transform your thinking so that you may prove and experience firsthand that the will of God for you is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray for you. Lord, as I've been praying all week, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people to offer themselves to you again this day, anew and afresh, or maybe for the first time. And Lord, as we do, may the adventure of living out your will begin on a whole new level, a whole new plane. Spirit of God, as I've been asking you, do your work in us in these next moments. In Christ's name, amen.